This episode will contain spoilers for my book First Degree. If you've not yet read this book but intend to, please don't listen. However, if you do not have not yet read this book and don't intend to, feel free to give it a listen, but just know I will spoil everything. Enjoy! This is a quick trigger warning for this episode. In this episode, there will contain discussions of PTSD, neglect, child abuse, drug addiction, murder, violence. If this will trigger you, please do not listen. I would much rather you protect your mental health than listen to a podcast by me. Please protect your mental health first. Love you. Bye. You know what? No. Hello and welcome back to the Shut Up Bella podcast, the podcast in which you will beg me to shut up and I do not listen. My name is Bella, I am your host, and today we are talking about my book, First Degree. This will be the first deep dive on this podcast into my books, and I am very excited because I have just got out of an English lesson, which we're exploring a poem that's called Beautiful by Caroline Duffy, in which the whole motif of the poem is beauty and it's about what society and what the male gaze expect of beautiful people and I think that theme is really relevant in first degree and it just got me very excited to film this episode. So a brief overview of what we're going to be talking about today. We will be talking about you know how I came up with the book and we'll be looking into the plot of the book and things like the characters. I'll give a small blurb for the book and might have a few fun facts hidden in there too. So if that is something that will interest you, just keep on listening. So to start with, the synopsis of the book on Wattpad is Melanie Stocker is dead and for once the popular girls are getting the blame. I mean, I'm saying that off the top of my head so it is probably wrong but it's along those lines. So the briefest way I can explain the book to those who haven't read it is, you know, essentially what I just said, Melanie Stocker is dead and our three female main characters, Hollis, Ellis and Sabrina, will be getting the blame for this. And in general, obviously the plot goes a lot deeper than that and explores themes of female friendships, female alliances with one another and also the hatred that girls can have for one another. It's very much a book that explores toxic dynamics within high school, which is kind of an overall theme for a lot of my books. And, you know, it is a piece of work that I am deadly proud of. It was my first original book. And I lied in the last podcast. I'm so sorry. Feel free to cancel me on Twitter for this. But I said that the book was written in 2018. I went back and checked the revision history while I was doing a bit of research for this podcast. And I actually wrote it in 2017. So let's set the stage for a little bit for how I got the idea for this book and how I wrote this book. So picture it. I'm a writer, I should be able to set soon. So picture this, you are me in 2017 and the movie Before I Fall has just came on Netflix. And it was quite late at night. I say late, it was like 10pm but I am a grandma hot, I go to bed early. So it was like 10pm and I thought let's watch a movie before I go to sleep. And Before I Fall was new Netflix and it had Holston Sage, who I love, in it. So I thought, let's give this a watch. And it got to this scene in the movie, if you've watched the movie you'll know this, where the 
main characters who are supposed to be the main girls of the book are at a party and the nerd girl who they bully is also there and they have a physical altercation in which and then it's like kind of you know develops and evolves into a huge fight between almost everyone at the party and this one girl and from that I was watching that and I expected the movie to go in a totally opposite direction I expected you know these girls to essentially murder this girl and that's the opposite of what happened no spoilers to that movie that did not happen but that's what I expected and then I, that got me thinking but what if that did happen you know what if because you see a lot in media that the bully goes back and takes out their revenge on people who bullied them but what if in this case the bullies take it too far and that's something I really want to explore but not only that as soon as I got into writing it I thought well what if the girl who's being bullied what if it wasn't as one-sided as bullying? What if it was a mutual thing they all did to one another? And so from there, the plot of the book just grew and grew and grew until it became what it is in its original draft, where, you know, Hollis, Sabrina and Ellis were definitely bullying Melanie, but Melanie was being pretty awful right back. And I think that was something quite important because at least in my experience with conflict with peers in high school, it wasn't always as one-sided as just bullying. It was mainly, like, fighting on both ends. It was like a mutual conflict we all decided to have with one another. So it was important for me to establish that, whereas in the original movie that inspired this whole book, it was a one-sided altercation between people. So that is the origins of the book in a small blurb. Next up, I want to take a deeper look into the plot. So once again, I'm just going to give another spoiler warning that I will be talking in depth about what happened in the book. And because it is a murder mystery, obviously I'll be spoiling the ending for anyone who hasn't read it. So last spoiler warning, but let's get into the plot of the book. So the first thing with the plot of the book that I want to discuss is we'll take it chronologically well, that makes no sense and we'll talk about the first few chapters so for anyone who hasn't read this book and is thinking oh like I want to um you can't <laughs> I have taken it down off Wattpad because it needs some serious editing like I've said I wrote three years ago so it's currently been taken down so the version of the book I'll be talking about today will be the first initial draft that most people have read Maybe I'll do a second version of this podcast, Hope Reunion Rise Part 2, when I have the second draft, the edited draft, up again. But for now, we'll just push on with the first draft. So, the first few chapters is important for setting the scene of money, privilege and power when it comes to our um, female main characters, those three. So, straight off the bat, the first line, we'll learn about Hollis Whitley. And obviously I'll be doing a deep dive into the characters later, but... It was important first and foremost that the first relationship to be introduced was the Sabrina and Hollis friendship relationship. We'll discuss that later. But it was first and foremost that had to be introduced. So we learned that Hollis Whitley is just being given another car, another birthday present, which hopefully for any readers clicks something in their head straight away that, right, this isn't a normal teenage girl. This is a teenage girl who has the world at her feet. Because in Stormfair, the town my first degree set, 
the whole point is it's a privileged space and everyone is at different levels of privilege. So obviously you've got Hollis and Sabrina who are highly, highly privileged girls from very, very wealthy backgrounds. And then you have the likes of Ellis who is still privileged by all definitions of the word. But she's not upper class, she's middle class. Which brings around some of the conflicts we see develop later in the book with Ellis's character, which I won't get into yet. But what had to be shown first and foremost is that Hollis, Ellis and Sabrina are the bullies. When you open that book, when you read the first chapter, I say open the book as it's a re- real thing, like when you click on the book on what part and read the first chapter, you should read it and think, these girls aren't likeable, because initially they're not. I mean, you can see sort of the moral dilemma Sabrina starts to have regarding the bullying of Melanie, and you can see her try and counteract that a bit. But at the same time, she doesn't actively go out of her way to stop it. She's passive in it, which in my mind makes her guilty of it as well, but we'll discuss it later. I keep saying that, but this podcast will end up being like an hour long because I am just rambling about first degree. I love first degree. So yeah, the first thing I wanted to do within planning the plot and then writing the plot was to have readers understand this is a book about wealth, this is a book about privilege, this is a book about you know, bullying essentially, but also it's a female-centric book, which is was so, so fun to write because the, the main characters introduced in this book, in this whole chapter, are female from what I can remember. Like I said, I'm recording this off the top of my head. I haven't notes in a script, but I haven't reread the book to make this podcast. But I think the only male character who plays a fundamental role in the book, mentioned, is Greg, Sabrina's ex. Yeah, so this is a female-driven book. This is a book about female dynamics, female relationships, female friendships. This is a book about females going through trauma, which, you know, as a woman, is amazing to write. And it's, hopefully for readers, it's also something that's really great for them to see. So yeah, the first chapter, that's what I wanted to establish. I wanted to establish that this isn't the typical murder mystery where there's a romance subplot. We'll get to the romance. Where there's a romance subplot. This is a murder mystery and its main themes are really centric in the female characters. Which is why Tom, the male character, isn't introduced until a couple episodes later. So after the first two chapters... Like I said before, it was all about it's all about showing female friendships, this book, in my mind. Whether that be the toxic female friendships or really heartfelt teenage friendships. So I get a lot of comments on the first chapter and I think the exact same way about Hollis and Sabrina's friendship. Because the first chapter really goes into detail about Sabrina's addiction and how Hollis helped support her through that. You know, Hollis put her through rehab. And Hollis was there to really build Sabrina back up after her ex, Greg, tore her straight down. So what you first see of that friendship is something quite pure and something quite based on emotional connection. And even when Hollis is introduced, Hollis isn't introduced to be what we know her to be by the end of the book. She's introduced as, you know, the carefree spirit and she's just, she's wild and she's singing Abba in the car, I think. She's nothing but would see her developed to be 
And that was really important that throughout the book we see every angle of this friendship. We see the heartfelt moments of Sabrina comforting Ellis at every single breakdown Ellis has. Did I say Ellis? I meant Hollis. Every single breakdown Hollis has. No one supports Ellis. No one should support Ellis. But then you also see the very, very toxic nature where this is a friendship that has rules, it has regulations, it has a superiority order, like it has a hierarchy within it. And even as that hierarchy shifts, as Hollis goes through her struggles and Ellis takes over the mantle of head girl, head like the queen of the friendship, the hierarchy's still there, which no real friendship should have. And I think the toxicity of this friendship group is something that a lot of girls experience. Not even girls, everybody, but because this book was written by a girl, for girls, includes girls, I will mainly be talking like from that perspective. But this is not me being inclusive at all. Inclusive, this is not me being exclusive at all. So yeah, so all of my friends, all my girlfriends have expressed to me that they've all at one point or another been in a toxic friendship, whether that be the nature of which the other friends talk to them, which we see with Ellis and Sabrina, particularly in the Secrets and Sins game during the Halloween party chapter, or whether it be like having a hierarchy or seeing as one friend is the leader compared to the others. I think that is something that's really, really fundamental to like a girl's social development having a toxic friendship in a lot of ways is just like being in a toxic relationship it can really stunt your social development maybe i'm speaking from personal experience i am and maybe i'm putting words into other people's mouths but like that's what i've experienced i wrote this book in the time when i was in a quite toxic friendship and that's where a lot of the inspiration comes from it was my way of like reclaiming what i've been through and also trying to understand the people who put me through that in a way so yeah the whole point is you see this friendship and you think wow like they seem really good friends and then little bits are dropped throughout even within the first chapter you see the bullying and you think oh that's not quite right or you see the fight in chapter two I think it is and you think oh that's not quite right and all throughout there's just these little drops that Everything is not as it seems within this group of girls. I think another really important aspect of the plot for me when planning it and when writing it is what I wanted for readers to do is to suspect every single character for being the murderer of Melanie. I wanted you to read the book and think, okay, yeah, it was definitely Hollis. Or, okay, yeah, Tom did it. Or, hmm, what if the author... So I'm going to just like to make Sabrina do it. You know, I wanted it to be that kind of energy. Because I've read a lot of murder mystery books in that time. And in particular, I read one called Dangerous Girls. And it was by... Ooh, let me check who it was by. It was by Abigail Haas. Haas. H-A-A-S. And in that book... I'm about to talk this about that book. So if you plan on reading it, just cover your ears. In the end, it's discovered that the girl who, the main character who's been narrating the story and has been 
falsely accused of this murder, it turns out she wasn't falsely accused at all and she actually did commit this murder. So for a while I was toying with the idea of maybe I should make Sabrina do it and then as soon as I like fleshed out Sabrina's character I knew there was no way Sabrina is capable of anything like this. So it was important for everyone to suspect anyone for this murder but that kind of came through the fact that I didn't know he was going to be guilty until probably until I started writing the trial chapters and they were around 22, 23 and the book only has 27 chapters and I write chronologically for this one. So while readers didn't know who it was, neither did I until I was writing the trial. But as soon as I started writing the trial and as soon as I wrote, I think it was Hollis's testimony, I don't know if that's what you call it, but when Hollis gets on the stand and she confesses to being in love with Sabrina all this time and you there is no way I can make Hollis Whitley guilty of this and from there that left two suspects that left Ellis Lloyd and Tom McLean and I think it would have been extremely challenging to make Tom the killer at that point because the issue with deciding the killer at that point was I, I had trapped myself a little bit I hadn't left enough clues to make it make sense that it was Tom because you know throughout yes he'd been involving himself within with Sabrina and with the trial and with that whole situation so in that sense it would have made sense but maybe this is because I watch way too much Criminal Minds if he was the killer if he was the unsub let's talk as if I want Criminal Minds if he was the unsub there was very little motivation for him to do what happened to Melanie besides perhaps their short conversation they had where Melanie outed Sabrina's addiction or perhaps you know he met Sabrina and he was instantly obsessed with her and that's why he would have done that to Melanie but even then that would have been incredibly difficult to write but also I think incredibly unrealistic for a reader I know if I was reading that that wouldn't have made any sense to me which is why I decided on who I did for the murder and that is what I will be talking about next so this is my final spoiler warning after this I'm not giving any more final spoiler warning I'm about to ruin the entire book well the entire first draft of the book we never know what's going to change in the second draft I'm about to ruin the entire first draft so final spoiler warning so now you've all been sufficiently warned about spoilers we'll be talking about the main choices I made in making Ellis Lloyd the killer. So first and foremost, I want to talk a little bit about Ellis's background and Ellis's trauma. Because quite a few... Sorry, my phone is going crazy. Thea, stop messaging me. I'm kidding. Love you, Queen. Anyway, so first and foremost, every character in this book has significant trauma, whether it be childhood trauma, early teenagers trauma, or teenage trauma. So for Ellis, she represents childhood trauma. She was brought up in quite an abusive way. In the book, it's pretty explicit, actually, severe child abuse, whether it be emotional abuse, physical abuse, or neglect. The main form of abuse she was shown as a child is her mother trying to suppress any emotions she showed. Whether that be... I think in the book, the anecdote that's given is every time Ellis cried her mother would lock her up 
where I'd have been. I think it was like in a closet in the book, or like in my notes I had written down for that book, it would sometimes be like in a one of those chest freezers. She'd just get locked away, essentially, for showing emotion, which was how she learned to suppress her emotions so effectively. And that's the justification she gives for killing Melanie. Do I think in my mind that's why she did it? Subconsciously, maybe. But her conscious efforts to do that, to do the murder, have nothing to do with. That is what she thinks. She views this as her winning a game. Her winning move in the high school game is killing Melanie, framing Hollis, no matter what that does for Ellis. Subconsciously, I think she views chosen emotion as weak. Which was why she viewed it as so easy to take down Hollis because Hollis is so emotional. Ellis saw this as weakness and thought, I'll frame the whole thing on her. She sees Melanie as weak and then is able to use that to justify why killing her was the right choice. Because I don't know if it's ever explicitly said in the book, but the whole idea is it wasn't necessarily had to be Melanie that was killed. Ellis would have done it to anyone and framed anyone because in her mind she's the puppet master and she's able to control everyone else in the world whether that be through manipulation whether that be through sex money anything she's willing to do that and control those around her at what no matter what the cost which i think is why it makes so much sense that she was the murderer anybody else i think i think for hollis it could have ended with hollis you know, hit them over the head with the bottle, call that a day. But I think introducing that further element of mystery where Hollis goes catatonic after she hits Melanie, thinking she did it. She to this day, well as I'm planning in the sequel, Hollis thinks she was the one who killed Melanie. Nobody knows that Ellis did it but Ellis. And I think that just adds the extra tension to the book. Where we're all it's like, even as I'm writing, I'm sat screaming to Sabrina, forgive Hollis, it wasn't her, it wasn't her. But then is Hollis equally as guilty because what she did could have killed Melanie? You know, it's something I'm open to discuss with anyone, you know. Because at some level, I think every character in this book is guilty of something, which is why it was so fun to write. But yeah, so that's all the main plot points I kind of wanted to discuss a bit more in depth. I think next I would like to discuss some of my favourite moments from the book. So when I think of what was the most fun to, you know, research, write, plan, that sort of business, the first chapters that spring to my mind are the trial chapters, which takes place, again, off the top of my head, around 22 to 25, 26, until about the end of the book. And so as I previously stated, this book was written in 2017 and in 2017 I was obsessed with how to get away with murder. I thought I was going to be a lawyer, I thought I was going to be Annalise Keating in like particular. I thought that was my future and um, my current grades say it's not but you know I digress. So I was obsessed with the way like, the legal system worked and things like that, especially American law. I'm not too educated on British law. Not really interested in being educated on British law, but yeah, I loved American law, so I did like 
days and days of research, almost like a week of research before writing these chapters about the American legal system and how murder trials are like held, especially for you know people who are like teetering on the line of being underage. You know, Hollis is explicitly eighteen in the book, but I, honestly, I think Ellis and Sabrina are still seventeen. Obviously, they're not being charged for murder, but they could have been. So yeah, so those chapters were extremely, extremely interesting. And the way I wrote them I, is interesting to me at least. So obviously with being a lawyer you have to do an opening and closing statement. And I knew that it had to read as legal. It couldn't read as, you know, the lawyers in the book telling a story. It had to read like legal jargon. So, and feel free to make fun of me for this. Every time I was writing an opening and closing statement, I had to read it out loud. And I had to read it in what I call a lawyer voice. I'm not going to do my lawyer voice on this podcast. That would be so embarrassing. But I had to read them out loud and I had to imagine a woman, I think. I think Hollis's lawyer is a woman. If um, No. No, the, the defence lawyer is a woman. Let's so imagine like a woman in like a pantsuit looking fierce. And I imagined her delivering the legal jargon every time I tried to speak out loud to make sure it sounded right. And every time there was back and forth between like a lawyer and someone on the stand, I tried to read it out loud and mimic how it would feel in a court setting. And that was honestly so much fun for me. If you know me at all, you know, I love a good argument. I love a good debate. So that was basically me debating with myself, pretending to beat other people, which sounds incredibly incredibly sad now I say it out loud and I can just imagine the people on Twitter making fun of me for it but I don't really care because hey ho my book was released <laughs> I wrote a book I'm so proud of that so those chapters were especially especially fun to write other chapters that come to mind when I think of fun moments in terms of the plot of the book is the crossover so if you didn't know first degree has one or two chapters where it crosses over with my other book, The Dethroning of Montgomery Kaiser. Obviously I wrote First Degree before I'd started officially planning T-Donk. If I say T-Donk, I mean The Dethroning of Montgomery Kaiser. It's just so long to say in one breath. But I wrote that before I started planning it, so I had no idea what direction T-Donk was going to go in. But I knew like the characters and their names and things like that, which is why you see mentions of Eva in the gold dress, which is why I gold her costume and her being very, very drunk and out of it. We'll get into that next episode. And there's mentions of Montgomery being related to Hollis because if you didn't know my books, Fear named this by the way. Or did she? Or do I joke about with Fear? I don't know, but my books exist in something called the BCU, which is a play on the MCU, obviously which is the Bella Cinematic Universe, and every book I write is somehow linked. I'll discuss it more with every individual book I talk about, but obviously there's the links between First Degree and T-Donk, and then The Rise of Harriet Franklin is essentially linked to First Degree because of that link with T-Donk. And in a way, the, all the books are linked under the Bishop, the, I almost said the Bishop family, they're not called that anymore, the Kaiser family. And I'll get that into that with more details, especially with books like Report and Missing and Better Sweet Chemistry, because in my opinion, how I've linked them, it's quite far-fetched. But hey-ho, 
they're linked what can i say so yeah the crossover episode was very very fun to write as well and so before i delve into the deep dive of the characters which i'm going to do as a second to last segment because i know i will talk for about half an hour about why i love hollis whitley and i don't know how many of you are interested in that we're going to do some first degree fun facts that you may or may not have already known so fun fact one is for me as a writer please have other writers reply and tell me if they do this too so i know i'm not crazy i associate every book i write with a color i can't explain why i can't explain the link but in this case first degree is blue when i think of first degree i think blue instantly which is why the cover is blue the cover's always been one shade of blue whether it be the desaturated first cover if you remember the first cover of first degree you deserve that runs discount honestly that cover was awful but i digress yeah so first degree is blue fun fact number two is that sabrina hollis and ellis their names were chosen because their first initials spell out she as i previously said this book is about female relationships female power female toxicity that sort of thing and i wanted their initials to spell out she because that's an important theme of the book um fun fact number two I never intended for Hollis and Sabrina to be the relationship they are. It only got to about halfway through where I was like, oh, I wrote a really strong romantic subplot between these two characters. And the main character whose perspective I'm writing from, because I write from first person, Sabrina hasn't even realised. So because Sabrina hadn't realised, I hadn't realised. But then, because I was releasing as I was writing readers started picking up on it before I ever did and I didn't edit the book I've it's never been edited until I'm about to start editing it now so I went and back and read you know the moments that readers commented on and was like oh (laughs) they have a point I have accidentally made the Hollis and Sabrina relationship highly romantic and it does it is obviously a platonic relation relationship canonically but then as soon as I saw that, I was like, yeah, yeah, it's obvious. Hollis Whitley is in love with Sabrina. It's obvious. <laughs> so that is one of the reasons why Holbrina is one of my favourite relationships I've ever wrote. I just think the subtext between them is so strong and so amazing to read about. And it's something I'm so excited to delve into more with the next draft of the book. Because obviously in the first draft, I didn't even know I was doing it. But now I know that's something I'm trying to include hopefully it'll be so much stronger and richer and more fleshed out and maybe Sabrina could explore some of her feelings for Hollis no spoilers for the second draft but that will be something I'm excited to play on and explore so to finally get into the character deep dive that I've been promising since the start we're going to start with our narrator of the story Sabrina Collis now choosing Sabrina to be the narrator I think it was something that I always knew I wanted to do because in a lot of ways playing the I call her the lieutenant to Hollis playing the second in command gets us to have an outside perspective on the drama that's unfolding I'll give you an example of this a literary example if you've read the great gatsby you know the book is narrated by nick but nick doesn't directly involve himself with the drama of the book which takes place involving gatsby tom and daisy obviously for sabrina this is very different because 
is more involved than Nick is in that plot. Nick is totally irre irrelevant. If you want to write about Nick in my DMs, please do. I dislike him greatly. But Sabrina is obviously more relevant to the plot in the terms of she initially starts the fight. She also gets arrested before she gets acquitted. And I think having her be somewhat removed gave me as a chance give me as a chance give me a chance to explore her trauma like I said all the characters are traumatized Sabrina's trauma comes from her toxic relationship with Greg who was a dealer who got her addicted to cocaine and a lot of her trauma stems from addiction to drugs and alcohol which I think is explored not as well as I would like obviously I can reflect now it's three years after I wrote it my writing has matured in those three years I can read back over it and be like critically that isn't great but the whole point what I was aiming for was for readers to feel Sabrina's downfall coming before it ever did and for you to read that and almost sympathize I can't think of the word but I wanted people to read it and be like I understand why this is something she's doing why her addiction is one of her things that she retreats to when things get rough and I knew from writing it no matter who the character was going to be that they were going to be having some sort of addiction trouble which I decided to include that for personal reasons it's not the first like this is the first time I tackled an addiction plotline um, if you've read The Rise of Harriet Franklin, you know I'd do it again in that book. I would say I'd do it much more maturely and better in that book. But in this book, I I can't remember, if I'm being honest, why I chose to include it. I think I chose to include it because it kind of shows how Sabrina's popularity changed and developed. She went from being popular because she was the party girl and she was wild and crazy to being popular to... Well, she was still popular during the events of her degree, but just being... She's able to be more critical of why she's popular. You know, people question it. Now that Sabrina isn't wild party girl Sabrina, why is she still with the likes of Hollins and Ellis? And I think a really, really interesting symbol of that is the fact that Ellis refers to Sabrina a lot as the Virgin Mary. Or during the Halloween episode, she dresses up as the angel, whereas Hollis and Ellis are the devil and a demon. So it's kind of having Sabrina come back from who she was when she was addicted to become this new version of herself she's able to be critical of who is she how does she fit in with these people and does she want to fit in with them so the next thing I want to talk about with Sabrina is just her overall presence what it was like writing from her perspective um because I write in first person it's something I talk about quite often Writing in first person means that the character I'm writing from at that time sort of shows the sort of frame of mind I was in as I was writing them. So because I think Sabrina goes through a lot in this book, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, with her best friends being accused of murder, found guilty of murder, one of them who obviously is guilty, one of them less guilty. So I wrote that when I was in... I guess like a dark space I don't really know I'm bad at talking about myself in my own emotions so we'll just gloss right over that 
But Sabrina Collis, when I think of her, the first thing that comes to mind is... Hmm, this is hard. Well, I guess let's talk about Sabrina's relationships, because I think being who she is, the people around her make up so much of who she is. She's one of those kind of people where she lets her relationships with others define her, and that isn't a bad thing at all. So I think the first relationship that defines Sabrina is her best friend and her relationship with Hollis. And I'm going to talk about Holbrina. That's going to get its whole own segment. I could talk for hours about them. But I also think her relationship with her parents and the way they never truly wanted a child. They just wanted an heir to their business. Her relationship with her aunt, her Aunt Mary, and Mary's kids is so important to Sabrina and to, to who she is fundamentally. It shows... The fact that chosen family can be more important than your blood family, which is something I would advocate until the day I die, to be honest. Her relationship with Ellis, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd say the relationship with Ellis defines who Sabrina is, but I definitely think their relationship is interesting to look at. Her relationship with Greg obviously plays a lot, a large role in who she is and in her trauma, like I've said. Her relationship with Tom. Okay, here's another fun fact for you. I should have included in the fun fact segment. Sabrina and Tom were supposed to be a romantic couple. But that never happened because as I was writing, I recognised these two have no romantic chemistry whatsoever. Even the scenes where I'm writing them as one-on-one that are supposed to be flirty do not come across flirty at all. They could not have been a couple in this book. So they do kiss when Sabrina gets drunk. But even then, Sabrina admits she isn't doing it because of she wants to kiss Tom. She's doing it because she wants to forget everything she's gone through. She does it for the exact same reason she goes to the shop and picks up a bottle of vodka. She just wants to forget. And so she says, you know, she deals with her problems the way she always has, alcohol and kisses. I think that's how one of the chapters ends. And then her relationship with Corey is interesting, to say the least. So I think that gives us a good segment segue onto the next segment, which is the age-old debate. Am I Team Corbrina or Team Holbrina? Let's discuss. Corbrina has its benefits. You know, they were first loves, childhood sweethearts, and I am a sucker for that trope. It's like Scott and Allison from Teen Wolf. That is how I picture Corey and Sabrina. But if I had to answer the question, am I Corbrina or Holbrina? The answer will always be Holbrina. I'm sorry, I'll hold my hands up and admit it. You know, in the epilogue it is announced that Corey and Sabrina do get married. But that is not me confirming or denying that they are endgame in the sequel Intent to Harm. That is a huge spoiler, by the way. And I don't care because like it's just me talking to myself, so it doesn't feel like a spoiler, but can't wait for the people to message me and be like, oh my god, Corbrina isn't going to be in the game, so who is? I'm not confirming that. I'm also not confirming that Corbrina isn't going to be in the game. I don't know, this got messy really quick. But anyway, yes, I am Holbrina over Corbrina. I think because we don't see the development, or I've never written the development of Corey and Sabrina, it's hard for me to be on their side, whereas with Hollis and Sabrina have physically experienced their emotions for one another and how 
those feelings like develop and change throughout the book so it is impossible for me to be Corbrina when like Hollis Whitley is sat right there doing everything she possibly can for Sabrina and where's Corey? Over in Rutherford but he's a topic for another episode. Because I've already talked about Ellis and deep dived into her as you know when I just talk about the plot into her being a killer we're going to move on to the next character. In this segment I'll just cover like a few characters because I'm saving Miss Horace Buckley for the end. So first and foremost we have Tom McLean like I said he was supposed to be Sabrina's love interest that didn't work out there was no chemistry there if you do think there's chemistry there get in touch and tell me where you see the chemistry and maybe it's something I could play on in the second draft maybe maybe not but yeah he was supposed to just be like the archetypal rich boy he was like collared polo tops and he plays like lacrosse or tennis or something really pretentious like that and he goes to country clubs and you know he's just like that guy and he gels his hair every morning you know very stereotypical rich boy next we obviously have melanie and we wouldn't have a story without melanie obviously but she's immensely relevant to the storyline but in terms of planning i didn't flesh out her character as much as i did the others obviously i had in mind i knew what she went through in terms of she had a student teacher relationship in which she was 16 so underage by the way to all those people who comment saying Hollis shouldn't have reported her relationship with the teacher she most certainly should and so I knew she had that going on and I knew she came from more of like a hippie background so her parents are hippies and you know they're very they don't really conform to society's expectations which is why Melanie gets a lot of flack. Her parents, you know, are very critical of capitalism and consumerism. And for someone like Hollis Whitley, whose power derives from capitalism and consumerism, she is inherently Hollis Whitley's enemy in that sense. Other characters include Aunt Mary, who is probably my second favourite parental role I've written first is Mama Branigan. that's next episode though but yeah she's my second favourite parental role the way she protects Sabrina constantly is admir- admirable and her the way she balances her career with being a mother I just personally it means a lot to me and I just really love writing that but next up we have the Queen herself. Hollis Whitley may be one of the most interesting characters I've ever written from. Actually, there are two characters, three characters, where I think these are the most interesting characters I've ever written. Number one, not ranked in order or anything, but number one is Hollis, number two is Penelope Rose, and number three is Harriet Franklin. And they're all interesting for the same reasons, but it's because of their depth. I think their depth is something not that my other characters lack, unless my characters do lack depth, please let me know. But just, I can't explain it. Something about those three in particular really stand out to me. So with Hollis, like I've said a million times in this podcast, which honestly it's so long. If half of you stopped listening by now, I wouldn't be surprised. But if you've been it this far, then you've probably already read the book. 
or you're interested in the book or you're just like listening to a random girl drone on for almost half an hour. But Hollis Whitley is incredibly flawed and traumatised. She suffers from PTSD, self-harm and just she's incredibly traumatised. She's obsessed with her self-image which I think at the start of the episode I mentioned how the poem I was studying School About Beauty linked to this podcast I wanted to make and that link is explicitly in the form of Hollis in my opinion. She is so obsessed with the persona she presents to the world that I wouldn't say it's narcissism at all in the way that Hollis is explicitly a narcissist. Ellis is so deeply insecure and the one way she can control that insecurity is through the version of herself that she presents to the world. Which comes in the form of her choice of clothing and her makeup and the way she styles her hair and the way she's mean to others around her. It's her way of self-regulation, almost. She's able to keep herself in check by ensuring everyone around her is kept in check. Which I think in media is a lot of, is something a lot of queen bees do. Um, the one that springs to my mind is Cheryl Blossom from Riverdale. I've only watched Riverdale for like one season. So if this is deeply incorrect about Cheryl, I'm sorry. <laughs> but from season one and a bit of season two, where it's revealed that Cheryl's a lesbian, the way she controls others is because the lack of control she experiences in the home, in my perspective. So I think growing up as Hollis Whitley, you know, with that title, would have been very hard for her. She grew up in a highly competitive household where her sister achieves great things and it's frequently mentioned Hollis has no aspirations and while that could be read as her being you know a privileged rich girl she doesn't need to do anything she doesn't need to work for money she has no work ethic or it could be presented as what I view as as Hollis's innate fear of failure because she is so deeply insecure about the way she presents herself to the world She's so scared of failing at anything, which is why the moment in the book where she has a breakdown over the photo of Melanie being sent to her and she's in the bathroom and she is sort of a cracked image of who she's supposed to be, where she, her hair hasn't been done and she's wearing an outfit she wouldn't normally be seen in. That moment is so interesting because, I mean, for me, if I was seen in joggers and a t-shirt, I wouldn't be too upset but to see that fracture so much of her identity it that doesn't read narcissism to me at all that reads just as plain old insecurity and the Hollis Willis the Hollis Willis that's not her name the Hollis Whitley facade and frontier is so evidently a mask to hide everything she feels. Hollis's sexuality is something that's quite important to her character as well I think because it's explicit basically from the very beginning you know she has this I'm sorry if you keep hearing me click I'm I talk on my hands I've been clicking a lot throughout when I'm like trying to make a point to myself I apologize if you hear that and you don't like the noise but um yeah Hollis's sexuality is explicit from the beginning she isn't straight but she has this on again off again relationship with Jack who I forget exists all the time 
and then she has this explosive argument with Jack in which he calls her a psycho and whatever but yeah it's obvious from the beginning Horace even makes a comment about it I'm pretty sure when Alice is like Alice says something along the lines of are you sure you two aren't girlfriends about Horace and Sabrina and Horace responds with something like I can't even remember to be honest but yeah Horace isn't straight which is something that you know her family accepts she's popular you know not despite it but I think a lot of the LGBT plus people go through quite extreme bullying for their sexuality and that's not something that happens in this book I didn't feel like homophobia needed to play a part in this book obviously exists in the real world and that is absolutely devastating but it was something that this book was dark enough I didn't want to have to bring in homophobia and other crap like that to be honest even if it would have made the book more realistic it just it didn't feel like something necessary to trigger readers with but Hollis Whitley like I said most of my books have a colour First Degree's colour is blue because in my mind Sabrina Collis's colour is blue but Hollis Whitley's colour is pink and that is because on the surface pink is like a you know it's like a girly colour you know you wear pink like when you're feeling like cute and fresh but also I read this thing once that in the olden days boys wore the colour pink because it was seen as a strong colour and girls wore the colour blue because it was seen as a weaker colour which was it's always like subverting gender roles blah 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 feminist rant isn't going to be in this episode guys don't you worry that's for a later date so I thought that idea was really interesting in terms of Hollis in my mind is very strong so I wanted her colour to be a strong colour and historically pink is seen as strong Hollis is strong, Hollis is pink. I also frequently make reference to Barbie in terms of Hollis. That is a way of sort of reclaiming Barbie. Barbie dolls do get a lot of black in the media for being one-dimensional, you know, teaching girls. You can only be beautiful. Barbie is an astronaut, she's a president, she is a doctor. Barbie is amazing. I stand Barbie hard. Which I think, you know, Hollis does have a lot of potential even if she has no interest in acknowledging that she has it it's there yeah Hollis Whitley is so interesting to me I could talk about her for like five more segments but I'm aware that this episode is almost an hour long and there are some fan fan is I'm not saying the word fan ever again some questions from listeners that I would like to answer this is so exciting for me so so first and foremost I want to include a voice message question that a listener has sent. This was sent by Thea aka Archeronta on Wattpad and Instagram and TheaXWP on Twitter but if you just read it as TheaWap like I do that's fine so I'll play that message now. I just want Bella to know that I recorded this podcast questions like three times that's how much I do be simping for her um yeah I have a list my first question is what inspired you to write a friendship dynamic like she which is Sabrina Hollis and Ellis for those of you who aren't as hardcore first degree stands as I am Uh, second question oh second question ma'am when will you be 
posting again. I'm so, so very ready. Like, the fuck? Um, yeah. I recorded this podcast straight times. Um, yeah, my third and final question, the most important. Um, do you do you forget Tom's name as much as I do? Because it's becoming a problem. Like, who is he? I forgot about him. Is he relevant? No, he isn't. I mean, first of all, thanks for bothering to record it three times. I mean, if I'm thinking about it, like, would I have bothered, bothered that much for you? Mm. <laughs> That's a joke, by the way, for everyone who doesn't know, he and I bully each other on Twitter all the time, so I can bully you here on my podcast too. That's a totally fair game. But, um, so your first question, how did I get the inspiration for she? Um, like I said earlier, toxic friendships are something that I think plays a role in a lot of people's lives. And it's something that it's quite easy to draw inspiration from in your own life. You know, I was in a toxic friendship at the time, me and a few of them my friends, and at the time we weren't able to reflect in a way about what we were going through. I don't know what to talk about, but on the flip side now, we're able to look back and see the aspects of it that were toxic and the aspects that weren't. And I think a lot of friendships can be like that, you know, a toxic relationship doesn't mean toxic 100% of the time. It can be split, but that doesn't make it any less toxic. That's what I'm trying to say. Your second question. Um, first of all, the tone is rude. <laughs> I'm joking still. But when am I um, posting? I would love to have an answer, honestly. At the minute, I am going through writer's block where I can't sit down and write anything new right now. It's a big struggle, which is why recording a podcast is a good way to keep my creative energy going and editing is a lot easier for me than sitting down writing something fresh so at the minute I'm focusing on editing and the podcast to kind of keep the creative energy alive but when I'm back to posting again I'll let you know and for your last question I forget Tom's name constantly I mean you know this Tom in the first draft is painfully irrelevant like why would I write a character the issue is Tom is He's a weak character. He doesn't have much of a personality. And when he's up against people like Hollis Whitley and Sabrina Collis, who have so much personality, he just doesn't really stand up. He doesn't really compare to them. So that is something I am addressing in the second draft. And hopefully after we've both read the second draft, we will be able to remember his name a bit more. And now we have some questions from Obsidian Inc. on Twitter. They, the first question is, who's your favourite character to write? Um, obviously, I write first pers- fi- I write in first person, so I write mainly as Sabrina. But my favourite character to write about as Sabrina would have to be Hollis. I think the way Sabrina takes on her relationship with Hollis and description of Hollis is a lot of fun. The way that changes over time, because I think at the beginning she idolises Hollis as her best friend. And near the end, you know that idolisation turns more into disgust for what she thinks Hollis has done. Do you have a song you associate First Degree with? Yes, I have several. If you didn't know, in the first draft of First Degree, each chapter was a song title. Since the book was written in 2017, the songs are painfully 2018 mu- 2017 music. I keep saying 2018 years old. No, I mean 2017 at this point. As I said, cancel me on Twitter for it. I don't care. So the songs I associate 
first degree with are Candy Store from Heathers. I think Sabrina Hollis and Ellis have very big Heathers energy. Um, the song Head Above Water by Avril Lavigne is a song that I greatly associate with Sabrina, as well as the song Wild Enough by Alina. I really associate that song with Sabrina also, and the emotional turmoil she goes on throughout the book of figuring out who she is in regards to her popularity. What were the difficulties you faced? Um, it was difficult deciding who I wanted the killer to be. As I previously mentioned, you know, it was going to be Tom, then it didn't make sense for it to be Tom, and then it really made sense for it to be Ellis, so I decided for it to be Ellis. But with it being Ellis, it meant I would have to write as Ellis's point of view in the final chapter to reveal the truth. And that chapter was very, very, very difficult for me to write because it's hard to write as an emotionless character when a lot of writing is talking about emotions. So that was personally quite difficult for me. Which first degree character are you most like? I think in some ways um, I would say Sabrina in the terms of you know I was the one who was writing her so parts of me inherently slipped into her characterisation. Um, in a lot of ways I would also say I'm quite like Aunt Mary. In no ways could I ever say I am nearly as iconic as Hollis Whitley no matter how hard I try. And the final question of the podcast is where did you get the idea of first degree from? And like I said earlier, it came from the movie. I've just forgot the movie's name and I wrote a whole book based on watching the, the movie Before I Fall, which has Holston Sage and Zoe Dutch in it. And that was where the inspiration for the book came from. If you've made it this far in the podcast, just know I greatly appreciate you. And also, you're probably so bored, so I'll, we'll just end it here. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in touch and hear your voice heard on the podcast, feel free to send a voice message on my profile. If you would just like to submit a question, you can find me on all my other social medias, where on Wattpad is Babelladonna, two Bs, two Ls, two E's. And on Instagram and Twitter, it's Babelladonna, two Bs, three Ls, two E's. Have a very nice day. Bye.